Welcome to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people who've decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to challenge your understanding over the world around you and hopefully not challenge your attention span. Let's paint a picture. An isolated commune. Groups of young children are dancing around in a circle with their arms interlocked, while women in white chant in unison and lift their arms in praise of their religious leader. This particular image, of which many would describe as a cult, has been enshrined in our screens and much more troubling in our collective psyche. From Netflix's Wild Wild Country to documentary storytelling on the Jonestown Massacre or the Manson family murders, our media landscape has been saturated by a collective infatuation with these new religious groups. Yet in our contemporary society, defining a cult is a complex and arduous task. Followers will see themselves as believers, devoted to their leaders and the principles of the movement. Yet families, law enforcement, the media and other more established religious groups will rely on the term cult to discredit, disapprove and dismantle such groups. This begs the question, What really is a cult, and where does the power lie in defining such groups? From the outside, many of us may declare with strong conviction that we would never be foolish enough to fall into a cult. However, in this episode of Media Minded, it becomes evident quite quickly that defining a cult, much less recognizing that you may be part of one, is not as simple a task as one may think. Most of us are grappling with the same desires to inject meaning and purpose into our life. How can we be so quick to assume that we wouldn't find comfort and meaning in a group that fills us with a sense of purpose that we so desperately seek? To help us unpack these questions, we'll be hearing from an ex-cult member and how he found himself descending into the world of manipulation and control. He'll take us along his whirlwind journey from willingly giving up a third of his income to being assigned an accountability partner responsible for monitoring his relationship with his girlfriend at the time. From there, we will explore the semantics behind the term cult and the psychological processes associated with identity formation. We hope you're ready This episode is going to be a wild ride. Joining us on this trip are Richard Turner, a self-identified ex-cult member turned counsellor and teacher, 
and David Robertson, a lecturer in religious studies at the Open University and expert on conspiracy theories. I'm joined now by Richard Turner. Hello, Richard. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Um, so first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself, your background from being raised in the Church of England church to working towards becoming a counsellor, I understand. Yeah, so um, I was uh, I started going to a Church of England church at the age of four. So um, my my whole childhood was had had links with the church, going to church youth groups, things like that. Um, from a Christian family, and um, you know, as as I went on in life, uh, drifted away from the church when I was like eighteen. Um, lived a, lived a, you know the 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 years that lots of Christians live, where you you drift away, you go a bit mad, you drink a lot, things like that. As a grown um, up Catholic, I can fully relate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like a standard experience. I think it's the prodigal son experience or whatever. Right came to counseling uh, really because um i struggle with mental health um i am i am artistic and sometimes it comes with that is anxiety and depression because of the, the challenges that faces um went to see a therapist uh, really enjoyed the therapy and the therapist suggested that maybe i would be a good counselor so wow. then i went um, um and trained as a counselor um, came back to the to the church, regular mainstream church, nothing particularly controlling or, or outrageous or anything, and joined my counselling training. Uh, inadvertently uh, joined a cult <laughs> uh, without realising. Uh, lots of people As think one that does. I actually, yeah. Well, I, lots of people think that I actually must have uh, trained as a counsellor after being in a cult. But I, actually, my my, my journey in counselling training, which brought me into that environment uh, when I was looking for a placement. So. Mm. Um, you know, to the backdrop of my cult experience is this uh, very Christian background. So lots of like the Christian language is familiar to me and things like that. But that's kind of, you know, how my religious journey, if you like, leading into to being a counsellor. And um, obviously a lot of a lot of counsellors do have mental health struggles and things like that before they become counsellors. So that kind of led me into that area. But generally speaking, um, my background is... Uh, my, my, I, I had a very stop and start life, struggled to get into employment and things like that before I became a counsellor. Mm -hmm. Lots of battles, um, being autistic and not realising it, struggle and struggle. But uh, yeah, that's kind of my background mm -hmm. before coming a counsellor, really. Religious, religious family, a few mental health struggles and not really knowing where I was going and what I was doing for a long time. <laughs> Amazing. And, and it's interesting you mentioned the fact that you you kind of did it did these two things in tandem like you were studying to be a counselor whilst also um being fully engrossed in, <laughs> in the cult which again yeah. is not the kind of standard or, or what people perceive as the standard and one of the things that i'm i'm starting to realize you know speaking to people for this podcast is that actually they you know getting caught up in this stuff you know be it cults be it um conspiracy theories of any kind actually can hit anybody you don't have to be the tin foil wearing lunatic that lives in the basement of you know <laughs> god knows where like it can it can ca catch anybody um no matter what your educational background no matter where you come yeah. from who you are um before we get into your um rather exceptional <laughs> journey um how would you define a cult um <clears throat> I, I think well, that's the well, the, the the defining a cult is the difficult thing in actually 
spotting them, I suppose. But mm. there's lots of the debate about that. But for, for me, when, when I use the term cool, I use it as a term that relates to like psychological processes. Uh, often people use it to describe a wacky group that's a bit out there. And you even you said tinfoil hat wearing. But 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 when when I use that term, I'm talking about um specifically um a controlling group. There's often like a narcissistic leader behind mm-hmm. the scenes. Um, it's a group that starts to dominate your whole identity. So you start losing um, you know, hobbies and interests and connections with family, and the whole group becomes your identity. Uh, it's often very exploitative. There's uh, unethical um, methods of manipulation and control. Um, often the person is isolated from support or critical voices or the outside world in some way. And it's a group that just starts to take over your identity. Your identity effectively becomes that group. The key thing is, is the control and the manipulation and mm-hmm. the attack on the identity, uh, basically. So that's what I mean when I say the term call. It's it's a, the psychological processes and, the, and an environment that's controlling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, and you can, and, and that attack on identity, I think is a really, really important one. Because I mean, the the kind of, you know, narcissistic, often charismatic um, yeah. leader is, is kind of like a, a given but that kind of attack of self and sense of self. And we can see, I mean, you know, there's tons of cults that are really, really famous historically, often for mm-hmm. incredibly tra- tragic reasons. I mean, we've all probably heard about, you know, uh, was it was a Jamestown with you know, the mass suicide yeah. and Jonestown, sorry, um, with the mass yeah. suicide um, and, and tons of, you know, doomsday cults where you've got these, you know, incredibly charismatic leaders, but all of them start to, you know, speak the same language. They also have to stay the same rhetoric and, essentially start to act like the same person. So you really kind of see that kind of loss of sense of self, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really, really important. Um, yes. So, right, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm excited to, to travel down this, this rabbit hole with you <laughs> now. Um, I'm Alice, take me to Wonderland. It's a bit of a strange journey. I mean, obviously people get recruited in, into courts in lots of different ways. And some mm-hmm. of it's more forceful recruitment and some of it's uh, less, less intensive. You're like, in my opinion, it is a little bit like a smaller version of Hillsong, which is very famous because lots of the celebrities go to that uh, or have been um, to, to that to that church, especially in New York. Um, so how I got recruited, um, it, it, I kind of drifted into it a little bit, really. So um, I was looking for a counselling placement. That church ran a charity that supported vulnerable people. And I contacted them to, to um, ask if they had any placement opportunities for counsellors. And they said, no, but um, you can volunteer for us if you want. Um, So I got involved that way, just involved with their charity. So I wasn't attending the meetings in the early days. Um, However, even from from day one, there were these strange warning signs, something wasn't right. And I remember thinking like the sleek image of the charity and the church. And now, you know, because if you go to the services, it's there's smoke machines and lights and there's a photographer and there's big screens uh, with with all the bells and whistles. Yeah, and we professionally produced media on. And I remember going to, to the to one of the houses for, um, that they had and thinking, wow, this is really scruffy. This isn't like the image they're projecting. Um, but in a nutshell, you know, I, I volunteered for a for a bit and then and then they offered me a job. Um, and classically for that particular um uh, group is there's no interview process, there's no advertising for jobs. Anyone the kind of like or fits the face fits the picture, you you just walk into a job there. And it's quite classic that you know people would attend the church services and and then say, oh, I need a job. And then before you know it, they're managing a say, you know, um 
a supported accommodation for vulnerable people and um, we often with but no training or any qualifications in that area at all um, and so I just land, uh, you know, ended up in, in a job working for this organization and I was working for the United Reform Church, which is a more mainstream, less culty movement. Um, and um, th- that contract ended at that time. And then I thought, well, there, there is a church linked to the charity I'm working for. Why don't I attend? Um, and so then I started attending. At face value, this Pentecostal group has all the qualities of a reputable church, a network that spans across different continents, a charity to support vulnerable people, and charismatic services accompanied by smoke machines and bright lights. One could call it a rave for the religiously devout. But behind this fog of flashy lights and charitable giving, their approach to religious teaching is characteristically different from what we would traditionally think of as worship. Large established religions, whether it be Christianity, Judaism, Islam, or one of the many others, are rooted in theological history and in teachings from scriptures that date back centuries. On the other hand, the proliferation of new religious movements has affected the way religion is understood in our contemporary world, and more importantly, the way that we choose to ascribe meaning to cults and their religious counterparts. This is why we've recruited the help of an expert in the field of religious studies to give us a hand. So I'm joined now by David Robertson. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. So so getting into it, where does the term cult come from and how does it differ from the kind of modern use of, of the word? And when I say modern use, I mean the fact that we're seeing it utilized in a much wider context than what I think we would traditionally associate as as, as, a, as a cult. Yeah, so this is really interesting and uh, unfortunately quite complex. So I'll try and keep it as simple as I can. Um, the earliest kind of uses of cult was in anthropology. So in the late 18th century, people talking about different Hindu groups as cults or sects and the idea was this was a sort of small uh subsect you know so like the thuggy cult for instance that kind of mm-hmm. um and then this it, the, another famous example of it was in the melanesian islands um i think in the second world war where you have cargo cults again this was a, a small kind of um improvisational new kind of religion that emerged to what happened was that the the American army arrived and brought loads of wealth. And then when they left, the islanders built models of their ships and planes in the hope that this would bring material wealth again. And it was portrayed by anthropologists at the time as this kind of irrational uh, sort of example of magical thinking and primitive religion. Then kind of what happens is that it, After the Second World War, in the Cold War period, the intelligence services become really, really interested in the idea of internal groups being a threat, right? So during the Second World War, we became very worried about ideologies. 
When you say internal of, group, sorry, just to clarify, you mean like internal within a country? So like within, yeah, yeah. within a state, yes. Yeah. So, right. You know, uh, the communist threat hidden within. So there was always this right, idea right. of sleeper cells, right? And of course, there's this huge intelligence industry that grew up during the war, and all those guys are looking for new threats, right? Budgets need to be spent, right? Yeah, exactly. Because you don't get it back the next year if you don't spend it. Um, and uh, so there's a shift to all of these um, baby boomers who weren't in the war and are, you know, experimenting with different kinds of religion, spirituality, lifestyles. So they're dropping out, they're taking acid, they're listening to psychedelic music and they're reading kind of Hindu and um, Buddhist and uh, kind of new agey texts. And they're in the very conservative uh, sort of military and government of the time, there's the, becomes this real concern that these groups are in fact ex just modern examples of these primitive cults, right? And that's where the term starts to get applied to kind of small um, and often new groups in in the West. And but the thing is that you'll often hear it said that cults is you know it's a very debated term whether we should use it. In a sense, this is true, but it's not really the case in academia. Scholars of religion just don't use the term. It's something that insiders use. So you'll mostly hear it coming from either journalists who are looking for something very sensational to report on or from other religious groups who, you know, there's a sort of inter-competition for the market, if you'll uh, let me put it in that way. Um, so you're saying that academics don't use the term? It's not. It's not a thing that's. No, not at all. No. Interesting. No. It, it's uh, it's it's the the, the most common um, thing we'll see is if somebody asks, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, how do you define um, cult? I, I would usually say, well, I don't. Other people do. And and it's interesting you say this because obviously for. Um, for people outside of the academic sphere, you know, th th this word is often often thrown around, and you see what you'd associate as kind of the, you know, the, 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 for lack of a better term, you know, the traditional cult, you know, the, 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 and I and I forget the name, but the, you know, the, the cult that led to the Jamestown um, massacre, for oh, example. Oh yeah, like the like People's that. Temple, very, for instance. Yeah. yeah, that's a very you know, almost traditional example of what most people would would deem as a as a cult or, or, or you know if you say the word that's kind of what you're thinking you know a bit of a yeah. lunatic but also charismatic leader tends to end in either mass suicide or something pretty crazy and tragic often peripheries of society um but you know you've raised concerns of, on, on other podcasts about how the term cult is kind of thrown around to, to delegitimize groups and it's interesting mm. because if you kind of boil down the word cult and and, and religion at the end of the day like you think of a cult as, as a negative and you think of religion as more often than not a positive. And, you know, but you see cults as having, you know, a flock, people that follow someone that um, often don't have individual identity. Their identity is very much linked to the group. And um, you have that one kind of charismatic leader, but you can pin almost any religion to that kind of narrative. The only difference, yeah. I think, is probably size. Um, and even then... Yeah, I mean, size is definitely a big one. The the, the larger and more kind of accepted um, by society in general, the less likely something is to get um, identified as a cult. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those terms where you can sort of say, oh, they tend to be small, they tend to be new, they tend to have a charismatic leader. 
and they tend to end in suicide or murder. But when you actually look um, at detail in these examples, it, there's very few examples that fit that perfectly, but it's kind of loose enough you can make it fit, right? And as you said, you can make that fit for a lot of, you know, a lot of conventional, uh, more accepted ones as well. Um, but you're quite right. I mean, both of these words, you know, religion, cult, they're both very, very loose and the, the boundaries of them are, it, it, it's a funny thing. We always like when an academic comes on, we always say, well, how do we define this? And the truth is academics are very, have very little to do with defining how people talk about uh, cults and religion. The fact is that religions um, are defined essentially by governments and in lots of different ways um, that, uh, you know, that one group has a sort of legal status as a, as a religion is, is not a decision that academics often have very much to do with at all. There is nothing which says this is or is not a religion. Mostly, we are very used to accepting five or six things as being religions, but they are, that's largely for historical reasons. And actually, they don't have a great deal of things in common beyond um, the fact that they sort of look enough like Christianity that they don't cause us too many problems in Western society. But do you, do you think it's it's a, it's an age thing? And when I say age, because it's because of how old are the churches, or, or or is it a finance thing? Because if you look at, for example, the Catholic Church, and then if you look at, um, say, Scientology, for example, Scientology has also gone through a, a series of scandals, um, and obviously very very wealthy religion as well. Um, but it's not. I mean, maybe this might just be my my perception from my own from my own bias growing up Catholic, but it seems like the Catholic Church has almost retained some sense of 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 of, of reputation, whereas Scientology is a little bit more challengeable. Like people mm -hmm. don't don't see it in the same light. Yet they're both quite mainstream now, yeah. despite Scientology's is how, how new it is. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah. So I mean, the, this uh, Scientology, I've argued a few times is uh, the amount of suspicion that they get really exaggerates the threat of them. They're, they're, the scandals that have come out of Scientology are relatively minor in the scheme of mm. coercion and, and abuse, right? There's a number of things about Scientology which I think upset people inordinately, but they're also just an easy target to pile on. Okay, They look silly a lot of the time. They've made a lot of enemies by, you know, suing everybody and acting strangely. But I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. It's the lack of of power. Okay, if the um, Scientology had been around for as long, if it had had roles in as many governments, if as many people in communities put their identity onto it, if it had the same numbers, if um, and maybe a more useful sort of a third example to bring in would be that maybe the Mormons. I mean, the history of the Mormon church is um, no less bizarre than Scientology. And, and to be fair, you know, once you get, once you, if you're able to step back and, and look objectively, the history of the Catholic church is, is you know, some of the ideas are, are, are uh, no less um, unscientific yeah. and, and bizarre, right? 
we're just much much more used to them and and that's it isn't it it's, it's, it's the fact of getting used to um something existing and being a part of our the collective narrative that just makes it easier to to, to stomach and therefore almost allows us to give them a bly when they do things that are, uh, other groups we would say would be would, would, would be incredibly abhorrent so there's this principle that when we have insider groups and outside, when we are an insider of a group and a member of our group does something that we don't like, mm-hmm. we tend to see them as an exception. But when a member of a group that we're already suspicious of does something we don't like, we tend to see that as exemplifying what that group is like. Okay. Now we saw this a lot in the after. Um, 9-11, for instance, where um, if a Christian went out and shot up a school in the US, we would say, well, they're a lone wolf. They've got mental illness. And if a Muslim did it, then it, this was mm-hmm. jihad. This is what Islam's all about, right? Both were nonsense. People in every religion do good things and do bad things. But we tend to demonize the outgroup and the you know the, the people we're suspicious of the newer people this smaller group the, the people that whose ideas we're not as used to and give the other ones a pass and it's as you know mormonism is a good example of how over time that can shift people can become comfortable with an outgroup and these kind of concerns dissipate mm-hmm. and we, we get used to the idea but it does lead to distortions and it can actually lead to to um, you know, just groups getting demonized when it's really not fair. History is full of examples where citizens and states have a vested interest in defining the status quo, including when it comes to religion. It points to the fact that there is no handbook to discern whether something is a religion or a cult or any kind of phenomenon for that matter. Much of the distinction is arbitrary. The power lies in the ability of these religious movements to create insider and outsider groups through various tactics that, from the outside, seem abhorrent, but from the inside aren't questioned at all. Followers often find themselves deeply embedded in the narrative and group identity of the movement before they even begin to consciously process these distortions. The way they talked about giving and, and, you know, serving people and, and things like that. It's all language that I was familiar with. But, of course, in that context, I didn't realise at the time is they meant something different by some of these words and some of the, some of the, some of the things they were talking about. But even... So for example, you know, I, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, um, so even... I'll Coming back to the money thing, because the money thing for me is the most tangible, measurable mm-hmm. thing that something wasn't right. So, you know, when, when I first attended one of those services i remember thinking you know they were asking for money and they had a separate teaching slot asking for, for money and i remember thinking wow wow they really focused on getting money from you and i remember thinking oh i've been warned about these churches but because i was so buzzing and happy i i, I just dismissed it mm-hmm. um but their version of giving wasn't giving the way i knew so giving the way i knew was like volunteering your time or doing something to help somebody um, but the right, there's, a, there's, a, there's a variety of different ways of giving, right? You, yes. you can give money, yes. but you can also give time. You can give goods. You can give Definitely. food. You can give, I don't know, tap like that. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's a variety of different things that you can give um, to support someone or a community yes. or whatever. Yeah. And in this case, though, giving always meant money. 
always meant money. Um, and, and that's classic, really, for, for lots of cults. They, they take words and they change the meanings of it. So it starts to mean something different. So how did but, your understanding of that kind of language? So, for example, like the word giving start to change? Like, was it an immediate change or did it happen well, slowly over time? Like, so it, was it very days, clear at the beginning that it's like, when we say giving, like, fork up your, your change, like, empty your wallets? Like, yeah, it, it was a, it's hard because it, at the time... I, I wasn't consciously processing any of this stuff. So mm -hmm. you go into the services and, you know, it's like a concert. Like you can feel it, vi the music vibrating in your stomach. It really is a lively, exciting place to be. Um, and, and so we feel it sounds like a rave. Sounds like a Sorry. lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, it's an exciting place to be. And it's really, it, and the problem is, is, you know, you're getting love bombed, they're telling you how amazing you are, which you don't normally, you know, you wouldn't normally get outside in your life that, you know, the, they make you feel really, really good. And then there's a conflict then when, when something seems wrong because actually the good feelings are saying, yeah, but you feel really good here, so it must be okay. There's no warning sign for, yeah, because they, because because it's so exciting because people are so nice. Um, and then so so all that emotional hype, there's lots of emotional hype going on when you're in these services. So while they're talking about the money and, and, and things like that, you don't realize you're beginning to change the way you think about money and, and giving. So they... It was mixed in with lots of uh, very um, intense, um, positive emotions because of the way the services were structured. Um, so every single week, alongside the main sermon slot, which is the teaching slot, if you like, you get in regular churches, there's also another slot where they teach you about why you should give money. Oh, you know, God loves a cheerful giver is the classic one. Or, you know, you, you'll unlock breakthrough in your life or store testimonies of people saying oh when i gave money god did this amazing thing and then i got this new job because i, I emptied my bank account or I, you know it's they encourage this reckless giving like giving without even analyzing it this this if you just let go of your finances completely then god's gonna like bless you and you don't realize that this is slowly seeping into your mind over a long period of time you don't because it feels good, the alarm bells aren't there. So even though intellectually I've been warned about these churches, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a knowledge way, if you like, I didn't account for the fact that there's, a, there's an emotional uh, process at play at the same time. So they do this every week. They'd have two offerings um, every year. Um, they, 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 they called them the dream offering and the first roots offering. And they would advertise them like they were big events and you're supposed to pledge uh, amounts of money from your wages and, um, they were collecting like um, across the country, like two hundred fifty thousand uh, pound in one go, uh, and and it's you know they're producing professional booklets. So this is on top of your weekly giving, and they're doing this twice a year as well. And it's becoming so normal in that environment to be giving beyond what you can because people talk about it. They go on stage saying, "I'm giving fifteen thousand pound next year. I'm going to stretch it further and I give twenty thousand pound." And it becomes normal then to be given like cra crazy amounts of money. Now, this is all attached to the word giving, giving, giving. And because in your head, you think it's good to give, but you start, you don't realize your belief then is then changing to um, it's good to give money, but it's under the surface. So over time, you know, in the early days, I didn't give very much money, but I started to give more and more as time went on. Um, and that's kind of how, how, and the language is very important in all this as well, because in, as part of like in, in like mind control and brainwashing theory, um, loaded language plays a part. So my, a language that, that um, brings up strong emotions 
that has connotations of emo, you know, um, things that bring up strong emotions, you know, you know, family, love, dream, destiny, any words that bring emotional mm-hmm. um, things to the surface. And that is part of a manipulation process. So there's all that going on. And even you, you can even see it in the name of the offering, the dream offering. That's very, it's quite a, it brings in, it, it captures this, um, I suppose, f- feeling of the future and what could happen and what could you dream and, and, and really what they're saying is, can you, can we have your money? <laughs> but making it seem like it's this mystical, yeah, like it's part of your destiny and you're dreaming with us and you're part of this vision we've got. I mean, this is um, <laughs> incredible. I mean, you, you mentioned obviously, because as you say, like you, you need to have a feeling of positivity to be able to be manipulated, if I may say in this way, to, to do give, you know, this obscene amounts of, yeah, amounts of your cash over. Um, you mentioned this term love bombing yeah. earlier, and I wanted to kind of explore what that is. Um, yeah. what, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, you, most people have actually encountered this. Um, sales people use it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, be really friendly, give a compliment, but there's there's a game in it. But we also we all know that salespeople are trying to sell us stuff, so there's, the deception element isn't there. But the thing is, with with the cults, the, the love bombing. Um, is part of a recruitment process and also part of a process of keeping people um, as members. Um, and, and because there's also the deception element and the exploitation element, it becomes really quite sinister. Um, so when, when someone's loving, love bombing, yeah, it's the, it, sometimes you get a genuine compliment for people and it's nice and you feel good, but this is off love, but love bombing is often over the top. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a manipulation technique to get people to feel really good, to get people to like the group member, the cult member, or the leader, um, and it's a little bit addictive in some ways. I, I think. I think that. I think there's an argument for that from my own experience. Anyway, like the the job I had before coming to to that to, to that church, you know, it wasn't. I, I came out feeling pretty low. My self esteem was a bit low because it just didn't work out. Um, I, th- I felt like I'd been really let down by the church I'd worked for, and. You know, they caught me at a time where I needed people to be encouraging me and building me back up. And um, I... It almost seems like an an unfortunate kind of domino effect where you were caught at a... Yes. At a low point and they almost took advantage of that. Yeah. Well, they they do say generally in the cult world that the most vulnerable time is in a transition period of your life. That's why everyone is susceptible. So end of relationship, end of a job in any transition period where you're going from one season of your life to another mm-hmm. and that when you're looking for something new or you need something or so that's why every well they say that everybody everybody goes through those times so that, you know so there are windows of vulnerability in all of us um but i i you know i, I remember in the early days like people be saying oh richard you're amazing you've got a real heart for this it, loads of culty language and uh and i'd be in tears because I, I was just totally overwhelmed no one had ever ever spoken about me like this and, but of course, then the problem with that is it buys buys loyalty. So I'm defensive of them then because you've been really nice to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the in the kind of early days, um, it felt really really good to be there, um, and that, that's the difficult thing as well is when you when you first get involved with these kind of groups, the early days often is very good, and that's what makes it very hard to spot them sometimes. Um, the, it's I think there's a, there's a quote somewhere that says nobody joins a cult. Um, they recruited and they or they join a group that they they think will make a positive difference to their lives or they, they join a group um, that they think is making a positive difference in the world, and then they find out it's a cult later on 
you know, it's quite, unless you know what to look for specifically, it's quite mm-hmm. hard to spot, you know, um, which is why education is quite important. Yeah. I lives. mean, no one, no one joins, no, well, no one joins a cult willingly. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to, no. I'm going to go join this cult. You know, you don't, you, yeah. and also when you're in it, you don't think it's a cult, right? You, no. you think it's a very wholesome organization. It's interesting because techniques such as love bombing aren't relegated to the sphere of religion. They're evident in day-to-day relationships, particularly when it comes to abusive ones. The point is, human beings by nature have a need to feel good about themselves. Who wouldn't want to be showered with love and affection by the people around them? It's precisely why individuals in vulnerable stages of their life find themselves investing their time, loyalty and income to groups that have weaponized manipulation tactics such as love bombing. You used an important word there, investing. That was used all the time. When oh, you really? invest in the kingdom of God, it's, it's like you, you invest, you plant a seed, seed faith, you call it sometimes as well. You put a seed in the ground and that's the money you're giving. So uh, over time, your whole perception of finances and, and, and the terminology and words associated with this gets distorted. Because at no point, you know, even the word investment, like you just yeah. said, out in the outside world, that means you get something back. <laughs> you'd normally get, I mean, not always, but you're, you're meant to get some sort of a return yeah. if you invest well. Yeah, yeah. But in this context, it was, um, it, you didn't often, yeah. you didn't, you didn't, you just end up with no money, basically. I have to um, ask, I mean, how much did you give in total? Well, it's a, com- it's a, it's a complex one that, um, for a number of reasons. Um, one is I was working for them and they were paying me a very low wage. So, I mean, it was so even it when was, you were working for them, they were still asking you to give give money back. Yeah. So they were paying so you were basically wage giving and, them back their wage that they were paying you in a roundabout indirect way. You could argue that. Yes. Um, wow. So I was on I, I was on a, a, a legal way. So it was above minimum wage, but you could argue it was below minimum wage because they were asking for it back. So <laughs> um, I do remember I do remember key moments, though. I remember once give it so. So, so just to give you an idea, I worked like 30 hours a week, I think, and I was on 13 and a half grand, I think like that. Um, so I was getting a thousand pounds. 13 and a half grand for 30. Yeah. So hours. I was I was getting a thousand pounds a month for doing 30 hours a week. Um, and then I remember specifically one occasion I gave, so I paid to go for a conf- to a conference and that's like three days, it's like 120 pounds or something to attend. Mm-hmm. And all they do all day is like, it's tiring it's exhausting you feel like you've been worn down and then they take offerings again they ask for more money at these you know uh this conference at these conferences and i remember sitting there and i gave them 300 pound without even questioning it i remember so that conference in total cost you what 450 so so the whole conference got yeah oh yeah so they took the ticket money and then took another like 300 pound from me or something like that um and I remember, I remember, and people have said to me in the past, like, what were you thinking in that time? And the, the answer was nothing. Like, you, there's a pressure, like, the people are coming around with buckets. You've got to fill in the form really quickly. Um, you know, it, it, it's quick decisions. It, and then they do, and, and I've talked to people in the past, and some people have said to me that they've done that deliberately. They don't give you enough time to think about what you're actually giving to analyze it, see if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you fill it in and you give, and it becomes so normal because you, you saw everyone do it, that actually you didn't even question it anymore. So, you know, I, I give um, for a long time. Did any of you see give... where this money was going at all? Like, was it? Well, that's a good question as well, because 
I didn't question where it was going because I trusted them because they because they tell you all the time we're going to change the city things are going to change and God's going to use our church to make a big difference but over time as I went on I did start to think well what are you actually doing in the community because like the charity most of it, it, it they, they talked about what the charity was doing but the charity was separate and then I was wondering well what is everybody else doing here and where's the money going and I looked on the pastor's Instagram and he, and I think he went to eight countries in six months and he, and he's there by the pool and on the beach and, and he's speaking at these different conferences and I'm thinking, well, who's paying for all that? And it, is it coming out of the expenses? And, um, and then the more, the more I started looking around, I started thinking they're living very nice lives in a nutshell, the money seemed to be going to the people in leadership and to be, to keep the organization going. So it wasn't actually making any much of a difference but quickly one thing i did notice when i left is that the the the, the senior pastors bought the other and um, these other pastors a holiday to new york and it was posted on instagram oh we're really thankful for what they've done for the church we bought them a holiday to new york and i was a bit like where is that money coming from <laughs> and why are all these leaders being bought presents all the time um you know and it was it was it was like that it was you know, while the people at the bottom, you know, you've got students giving the student loan money over, you've got me not being paid much money. I'm quite vulnerable at that time, giving, giving my, some of my wages back, um, even spending some of my own money in the charity because there never seemed to be any money. Um, so like buying things for the, for the, for the sported accommodation out of my own wages, because there just wasn't the money and they were scruffy, the houses and, mm-hmm. So it, yeah, it was, it was, um, there was a huge, there seemed to be a discrepancy, I think would be the word in the lifestyle that leaders were leading and then everyone else at the bottom and what the charity was actually doing, yeah. you know, yeah. on the ground. Tell me about the, the leaders. Cause we, we talked about this, obviously at the beginning where, you know, we, we see the leaders as these kind of, um, or quite often charismatic, um, very vain, uh, narcissistic individuals. Was that, was that applicable? Was that was that the yeah. same? So I mean, I, I mean, there's a couple of there's a couple of generally, generally cult leaders. They don't like to be abandoned. They're arrogant. They're um, they're a bit reckless. They're spontaneous. They just make decisions on a whim, and and they're quite controlling. Um, you know, there's a, there's a mixture of charisma and also, um, um, what's the phrase? Threat from them. Like they they there's a there's a bullying, controlling anger and also a charisma mixed together and that's where the you know um the, the damage is done but but in in this group you know you know everyone used to talk about the leaders like they were in love with them like go on and on and on about like the leaders and the wisdom and how the phrase they used to use is they spoke i allow them to speak into my life which is a very robotic repeated phrase i allow them to speak into my life Sorry, yes yes the leaders are wise one. the lead they went on they used to go on about the wisdom of the leaders all the time but it's like it was like it was odd. It was almost like they were in love with them, mm. um, and and I remember being there thinking, "Wow, there's something strange about these people." Um, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel right. Um, but again, you suppress these things because they're also love bombing you at the same time. So you every every gut feeling, every red flag, you just put to the back of your mind because there's lots of positive things going on as well. But yeah, um, to give you some illustrations of how odd you know the 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 leaders were they 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 wanted like complete submission but um you know there'd be a time where they're blatantly behaving like a bit inappropriately but it's almost like they lost touch with reality Mm -hmm. so there was one video released where 
um, the main leader was sat there in a hot tub and all the young male leaders were there in the swimming costumes. Then they got in the hot tub with him and they sort of played in church um, on a, on a, on the Sunday morning. And I remember, I remember thinking like, like, how is this not odd? Like, this is a strange thing to play in church on a Sunday. And it was like a comedy sketch, but it was still really odd. You know, on another occasion okay. where <laughs> I went out to dinner with, there was like 20 of us after a service and, and the leader was sat there with his arm around a young uh, girl in her 20s and her husband is sat next to him. And I'm thinking, why has he got his arm around there? Um, and he's bringing up inappropriate stuff about their wedding night and they're all giggling about it in the car on the way home. And I'm thinking, like, where are the boundaries here? It's like they can do anything. They can get away with anything. No one is, No one ever says anything negative about them at all. And even when I was there, you know, you can't be negative. You can't criticize stuff. It's positive all the time. But this all stems from the leaders because, like, you know, part part of narcissistic personality and and is is that they can't take criticism. Um. So then, effectively, they set up a community where no one is allowed to criticize anything because they don't like it themselves. Right. So the whole environment, everyone's there positive and happy and smiley all the time because they've all been effectively groomed and trained not to do what the leader doesn't like Mm -hmm. so even when I started I remember I was was one person and later on they said oh you know Richard in the early days you were really negative and critical and now you're not like that anymore and and I thought that was a positive thing at a time but looking back I was like no I was real at the beginning and then deluded later on um um, but they are it's really crazy when the leap so I was based, I wasn't, the headquarters were in Sheffield and I was in Liverpool, but when they would visit, one of them walk, would walk in late and it was like a rock star walking into the room. Like they, it was really strange. It was really odd, odd experience. It was like they could do no wrong. Um, um, yeah, it's, and because every, lots of the people in the inner circle of that, that was their whole life. They, they only hung around with those people. They, they um, they worked for the organisation often. They didn't really mix with many other people, so they lost touch with reality in a lot of ways, which often happens with cults anyway. So you can see more- how, because you're isolating yes. yourself from, from the real world. You're surrounding yes. yourself with people that are essentially just, yes, people, you know, they will yes. only tell you what you like to hear. Yeah. Um, partly because that's what you've, you, you've trained them to do. Um, and that's kind of perpetuated down, down the chain. So you're, you're never... You're never in a position to be to be criticised or, or open to criticism, which um, arguably leads to strange behaviour. Because if you can get away with anything, you start yeah. to do random yes. stuff like a um, a bathtub video that you play in your church. Like, why not? Yeah, um, and no one will say anything because they, they'll met they'll met be met with a wall of anger probably, or mm. they'll be pushed out. Because you know, if you start speaking out, they'll just push you out. You'll be punished for it. It'll and that's dangerous, cost. isn't it? Because if you are in a vulnerable state and you are in a position where you don't have any more friends outside, you, you you potentially may have pushed away your family. The last thing you want is to isolate yourself from the the final group of people that are at the mm. moment showing you love and care, but yeah. at any moment could switch that tap off. Yes. And 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 within that as well, um you think that that group is the answer to the world's problems. So, mm. so you think it's special and unique because we were told, oh no, no other churches have what we've got. We've got family here. So you think if you leave, I'm never going to find that again. Yeah. Because you told it over and over again. So, so you actually think 
you're losing out by not being part of it as well. So that's an, there's, there's lots of complex systems going on here that are all feeding off each other and playing against each other mm-hmm. and reinforcing each, forcing each other. Narcissistic, charismatic, entitled. These delusions of grandiosity are not only traits held by the leaders themselves, but are upheld by the power structure that they prescribe control over. They instill a belief in those around them that they are somehow special and unique, giving them free reign to take lavish trips to New York or film videos of themselves in hot tubs with men half their age. It's a textbook example of how we become socialized to our groups and their norms out of a desire to fit in, but at the expense of holding those around us accountable for their behavior and actions. In Richard's case, they had a whole structure in place that enforced unwavering loyalty, where the thought of leaving could mean completely isolating yourself. Yeah, so generally in cults in general, uh, you are you assign some kind of partner or mentor or someone who is there. They, they, they say for your own well-being, but actually it's a control mechanism. You, you, you're often encouraged to just report everything to them. And then they, generally speaking, in cult groups have, have a lot of power mm-hmm. over what you do and who you date and, and what you do with your life. And so in, my, in the context of, of my group, um, you know, I, I, when I got into a relationship, someone seemed to be assigned to me without my knowing um, but I know in other in other relationships in in, in the group I was in, they were consciously assigned. And Sorry, was the person that you were in a relationship with in the in the group as well? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so um, the one one story I, I um, one thing I noticed was so I knew someone who was an accountability partner for somebody else's relationship in the group, um, and for their relationship, uh, they, for the for the relationship, grown people in the thirties. Um, um, okay. and, um, what, one thing that, that I realized very quickly and early on is these accountability partners don't actually keep any form of confidentiality and they shouldn't be there to begin with, of course, but, and they were sharing private things about me, about from their relationship and, and things like that. So, but when I was, I was assigned one, um, they effectively demanded complete submission, um, to the leadership. Um, and this wasn't actually even discussed with me. This person just took it upon themselves. I was ordered to. Um, start meeting with me, checking what I was doing, what was going on in the relationship. And in the very early days of getting into a relationship in the group, I um, was called into a meeting and this was my line manager at the charity as well. So there were boundaries blurred all over the place. So um, this was your work boss as well as my your... work boss. Yeah, okay. my work boss. I got into a relationship with someone else in the in the group. Uh, my work boss called me into a meeting um said, you know, you you need to learn to become fully uh you know to fully submit to the leadership and and you know do what they say without question uh lay down a lot of uh rules basically for me and at the time i thought oh this guy's mad <laughs> you know i thought it was just him i thought he's got some strange beliefs obviously later on it i realized this isn't him this is the entire group is like has these controlling um the, you know the whole group has the uh, has an issue with being controlling um and so, you know, when I was assigned this accountability partner, they, they, his job is basically is to dig for information and make sure that I'm falling into line with what the group wants. 
So, you know, when, when I got into a relationship with someone else in the group, it's, you know, you, you, you're not to sleep with her. You're not to sleep in the same building as her. You're not to kiss her. Um, you know, when you go to visit, you'll stay with somebody else in the group. You're not to stay in the, anywhere near her um, so that they can keep control mm. all the time. And I think my partner at the time also had that same thing at her end, people just controlling um, the, the relationship. I mean, what would be a consequence of you um, not obeying this, this this rule? So, for example, well, if you did end up sleeping at, at her house, for example, as as a grown consenting adults are of course allowed to do yeah. um what would happen well um well in that context probably the leadership would order the relationship to be broken up uh, i do know one other couple where um they took a dislike into the person's partner and they basically said god doesn't want you in this relationship and they'd use god um because how would you challenge god so yeah god is a great weapon if you want to control people because no one can challenge it and they would say that um so, and that's effectively probably what happened to me later, later on down the line. But um, I, I did hear countless, at least a number of stories where relationships were controlled, you know, once I left, people breaking people up or putting people together that didn't want to be together and, and things like that. So relationship control is really common in cults in general anyway, because um, <clears throat> some, sometimes, so the, so the lead so the leaders are that selfish, <laughs> Basically, they want certain couples to be together because actually they think, oh, this will benefit me. This will benefit the group or this will be this story of them getting together. Will, we can use in our marketing effectively or they, they will like move people like chess pieces to, to put them together. Um, and, and also, why would they, they put people together? I mean, I'm guessing the it makes it harder for you to leave, I guess, because if, you, if you're in love well. with and, you know, you're with someone that is yeah. also in the in the group, then you're you're going to find it harder to definitely um, yeah. anyone outside of the group who gets into a relationship with someone in the group is then a threat because they might start saying, uh, this is a cult you're in, or this isn't right, or something isn't right about what, you know? So if you can get two people together in the group that keeps them more secure, so they won't, so they won't leave because they're less like it's harder to leave without your partner and you're, mm-hmm. you both got to agree as well. And even worse, sometimes they encourage people to, to, to um, have children and makes it even harder then, especially, uh, you know, if one partner doesn't want wants to leave and one wants to stay, well, you've got an issue then because the one who's left will be worried about the kids being brought up in the cult or, or if they want to take the kids with them, what, do they have the resources to look after them when all of their money and the whole life is tied up into the, the cult mm-hmm. as well. Um, and sometimes leaders will break up relationships as well um, if they feel jealous or if they feel like they're actually giving t- too much attention to each other and it's distracting them from serving the leader and the group. So sometimes they'll break up relations for that reason. So um, relationships, is it, you know, if a relationship has been messed about with by a group, it's usually a big warning sign something isn't right, um, you know, um, because they were a threat. The lead, the lead, it's the, some of it is the leader's abandonment issues as well. Like they don't want, they get jealous effectively because of the, because of the romantic relationship. Yeah. So often relationships are controlled. Um, and, even, and even things like um, uh, sex and things like that is because, I think what probably is happening is the 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 these leaders often the, these nasty leaders have poor boundaries and they're they're a bit out of control themselves. So they think everybody else is like that. So they have these strict policies about sex and things like that because they have boundary issues themselves and they can't be trusted. Um, there might be some of that going on as uh, as well to do with to do with that and um, um, you know so- and. 
actually controlling people's sexual relationships as well is another way of stopping them getting too intimate and close to each other. So mm-hmm. there's come some complex things probably got going on in that, but that's a kind of classic, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all, all, also as well, if you stop people having sex before marriage, they'll get married quicker. And if you get married quicker with someone else in the cult, they're less likely to leave. I mean, going going back to this um, to this relationship that you found yourself in. I mean, how did it begin? Was it so? Was it just a, a quite organic, natural? Because it sounds like everything's pretty staged. Yeah. So, um, so I I did some training and you know noticed someone and thought oh, they they seem nice, um, and then um, someone when I went back to to Liverpool, um, someone said someone in the a position of trust said to me, oh, there's somebody interested in you. Maybe you should meet them for coffee. And looking back, I thought it was quite innocent. I don't know if it was a little bit of a setup looking looking back. Um, it was less severe than other stories I hear. I, I know that for sure. But I, I went out for coffee with this person who was also part of the group, but just in a different city. Um, and even even then, like when I, when I first went to meet them, there were like red flags, something wasn't right. They were talking about how they were told to cut the mum out of the life when they'd been involved in the group because they, because they didn't, because the mum had mental health problems or something. And, um, and that, that she, that she had to do that. And also she said something about not keep having to keep, she wasn't allowed to keep secrets from, from the leadership or whoever was her accountability person and little mm. red flags where I was thinking this is a little bit odd. It feels a little bit odd, but I just, I just put it aside. Um, and then that was where, of course, which I mentioned already, when I was called into the meeting with the, my line manager and all the ground rules mm-hmm. laid out, but not even physically sleeping in the same building and all that stuff. Um, and then, like later on, as I got to know her a bit, um, the uh, there was a conversation about, um, <clears throat> you know, engagement, like a hypothetical. What if we decided discussing this? And then um, I got a, a speech from her, which was really bizarre about how I had to go to to well she's she says her friends but she means like the leaders and the, the uh her accountability partner or, or whoever about um you know i don't know her so i'm not allowed to choose how i'm going to propose to her i have to go to these 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 um these women in her life who she was accountable to and i had to ask them how to propose to her and that's more control so they get control over when what i do uh, when i propose and it was really odd, even when she was saying it, it was like a personality switch, like she was saying somebody else's words, like someone had said this way and she was repeating it. Um, so they even had so much control over it that I wasn't even allowed to choose how I was going to propose. So like, because she said, oh, you know, you you might take me to Paris and I might not like that. And um, and it was like, it was like somebody else speaking. It like her, her personality switched into this strange robotic, these strange robotic lines and then switched back again. Um, and that's when I started realizing, like, they've got control over this whole thing. Um, and and at that point, did did anything start to change for yourself and and the relationship when you started to an unsettling feeling these... that we needed to get out? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then there was another time just just after that. Actually, it was around the same time. Actually, um, I went to visit her. She slept in somebody else's house, and I slept in her house, but on my own. Someone in the leadership found out that I'd been in her house and slept there contacted the leadership on the other side of the country in Liverpool um, and said, like, Richard slept over at house. What's going on? And all these people who were in the leadership, and I didn't know most of them, were checking me. I was 32 and she was 29, checking where I'd slept when I went to visit her. And I was beginning to think, like, why are these people? And in an odd way, for her, 
for her at the time, she was like, oh, it's quite nice, this, that they're interested and they care. And it's like, that's how it's dressed up. That's how it's wrapped up. We care mm-hmm. about you. Just want me to be okay. But what really, what's really going on is the control in every aspect of it. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, with the accountability partner for someone else's relationship, they're sharing private things with people. So alongside this, you're thinking, I can't trust anyone because everyone shares things with each other. There's, there's gossip. There's no boundaries. And of confidentiality with anyone. So everyone is talking to each other about my life and what I'm doing. Um, and it starts getting really unsettling and starts beginning to feel like you're not in control of your life or, you know, over mm-hmm. time. So, uh, yeah, I've gone off on a tangent again. <laughs> and uh, when obviously you started to realize this and I believe you, um, you eventually, um, broke up with this person. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that used to control and isolate you in any way? So, so yeah. Um, well, well basically the, it just hit, it just hit a bit of a wall because there's only so long you can go having nobody to talk mm-hmm. to feeling like your life is slowly slipping out of your hands. And there's only so much you can handle until that cracks, that situation, it pops, the pressure just builds up. Um, and, the, we had a fallout over her sharing too many things with with these women, these women who were accountability partners, mm-hmm. and and private things, and um, which uh, resulted in a breakoff. Um, so it was actually our first ever fallout um, over anything, um, and I got a text message saying, you know, this relationship is over, and I read the text and I thought this doesn't even sound like you on this text message. This, this is somebody else's words here. Um, and, uh, I was then called in to another meeting with my line manager who had clearly set himself up as my accountability partner. And he, um, gave me the whole speech again about submitting to the leadership and said, I wasn't ever allowed to talk to her again. I was ordered basically. They, they, it was like the decision had been made that I was never to speak to her again. And that was it. One of the things that cults do is dismantle you and then and then blit and act as if it's your fault. <laughs> um, so they, they they construct your life, and then when you start struggling and you're getting depressed and anxious and you you don't know what's going on and you're confused and um, they they then like treat you as if it's you that's the problem and it's a mm. classic. So at that time, I was very confused, really depressed. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand it. I didn't know anything about the psychology. I didn't na- do now. And so I was, I was totally like, uh, they, they totally ripped me guts out, basically. When we look at a story like Richard's, the tendency is to point fingers and question how someone can act in ways that are completely in conflict with their former reality, morals, and sense of self. However, this completely overlooks the fact that any social group we attach ourselves to we are in one way or another being conditioned to act or behave in specific ways and naturally in some instances the groups that we attach ourselves to will operate through a smokescreen that is designed to disguise and distort our sense of reality When we look at, for example, a story like Richard's, um, and you know, uh, we've we've had this debate around 
cults and religion. And and one of the things that um, for me struck about that that story about his story specifically is that whether we associate that group as a cult or not kind of is almost is almost is almost irrelevant in my view because it it seems like a story where obviously a vulnerable person um was arguably put in a position where they themselves didn't feel like they had a voice didn't feel like they could negate the request of say say financial contribution to the point where it almost felt coercive and i wanted to ask how does vulnerability make someone susceptible to to coercion do you think yeah um yeah i think i think you've put that in quite an interesting way i obviously i'm not a psychologist so i don't want to speculate too much about mm-hmm. psychology um but certainly there are you know social aspects to this and and even language aspects as well mm-hmm. like we were talking about already um there are people who I think become more vulnerable to peer pressure or to group, let's say group dynamics. Right. Um, when they are looking for something and perhaps really want um, to find something in a group, right? When we're in a group, there's a very natural process in which we become socialized to that group. That in itself is not a controversial claim or even necessarily a problematic claim, right? We do it when we tell children to dress in one way and not another way, when we send children to school to learn certain things and behave in certain ways, right? This is just, it's what social groups do. And that remains the case no matter how small the group is. So when we join a a group, be it a religious group, be it a political group, be it any other group, we begin to normalize the social norms of that Mm -hmm. group. And I think some people, that happens more easily to than others. Um, And so they possibly become vulnerable to being, to going along with things that maybe with hindsight that they didn't want to. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, each specific case there is going to be different. But certainly I think that people who are have been raised for instance to put a great deal of faith and trust in religious groups are probably more likely to then join if they join another religious group assume uh you know a similar level of trust whereas somebody who's um who was raised an atheist might it might be much much harder for them to become socialized mm-hmm. Um, another, and and you'll notice that I'm I'm deliberately saying to become socialized. I I do have problems when people, when groups are portrayed as sort of all mindless and sort of mindlessly following the dictates of a of a of a single leader. My understanding of how social groups and how humans work is not really the case. People become part of a group and stay in that group because they get something out of it. Okay, people are are very self motivated. I certainly don't know very many people in any group who are mindless zombies. I think this is a an old fashioned way of thinking about people and and not a particularly healthy one. 
everybody has their motivations for being in something. And in the kind of uh, cult narrative that we've become very used to, we see examples where people are quite happy to go along with other things because overall they're getting more out of it until a certain point where they're not getting what they wanted out of it anymore at which point they start thinking, all right, this isn't worth it and I need to get out. And that's often where the trouble kind of starts, right? But that, but, but um, just, to, just to go back on that, because it's not, I'd say people are always getting something out of a particular relationship. It can never be just completely 100% one-sided. But at the same time, um, there are often situations where, um, you know, what you're getting out of it, you think is a lot more... Um, or often I think it's more to do with the fact that you, despite how little you're getting out of something, you you almost think that the current situation is better than whatever that unknown alternative. You can see this, for example, with um, uh, abusive relationships, for example. Like, I don't think anyone can ever argue that a uh, the the victim is, is getting an equal amount out of that relationship than the abuser. But in some of those cases, you can see that you know, the victim may be scared of leaving because of the, the potential repercussions or, you know, the unknown of getting out of that situation because they've been in it for so long um, is too is too much of a negative for, for them yeah. to get out of that situation until it reaches a certain breaking point or, or something obviously yeah. really tragic happens. And if you take groups as well, you can kind of apply that same narrative where someone may be in a group that is taking a lot from them, but they feel either fearful it could be them it could be just all in their own heads or it could be a genuine fear um or the unknown because all of them you see this with with conspiracy theories online now as well where you know you, you've invested so much time and money and resource and, and your energy into that group that leaving means isolating yourself completely um, yeah yeah and these are i don't think these are contradictory at all mm. that the, the person is getting something out of it at the beginning right they, and and often those will be things that they expect to get down the line. So often in an abusive relationship, for instance, the person will go in thinking, well, this, we can change this. Right? Mm. And at certain, or in a religion, they might think, well, I'm giving this money, but I'm going to get more back. Right. So that there is, they are getting something mm -hmm. or, it, or, and that might be the promise of something. And then at a certain point where they realize, oh, this person's not going to change and I need to get out or, oh, actually, I'm giving this money and I'm not getting more back. It's only when uh, those predictions don't pan out or, uh, you know, or whatever it is that fails to sort of the promise of something in the future fails. And now suddenly now you're now you're uncertain again. And that's the point where you start to realize that uh, mm -hmm. that it's no longer an equation that makes sense. So how can we navigate and protect ourselves um, against ending up in those kind of situations? Mm -hmm. So ending up in a in a group that you know promises the world if you give them X, but then necessarily doesn't deliver down the line. I often tell my students to be particularly alert for normative terms right which is a fancy way of saying when somebody says that something just is rather than mm. um making an argument right and if you once you get used to the idea of when it's, it's so it's basically when somebody says that something should be it should be this or obviously it should be this or ought to be that it must be this um 
and it happens all the time and training yourself to be alert for those is a really good way of being of just another layer of armor against kind of coercive arguing and um, because it often means that the person is just uh stating something that their group assumes to be the case but that doesn't mean it is the case mm. right um and you know if you listen to say you're lis- um, listening to conservative pundit let's take american ones because they seem to be much more um extreme in this kind of respect where they say something like but you know people people should work and they shouldn't expect to get health care and obviously it's our right to bear arms now it that's, there's no logic to that argument. It's just stating that something is the case. If you start to hear this all the time and everybody around you is saying the same thing, then you stop questioning it and you start finding that you are also saying these kind of things. All groups do this. I'm not saying this is something only of the right. It's just one that I think our listeners today might recognize. Right. But they, they'll, it'll be happening in the groups that they're members of as well. And the more we can train ourselves to sort of watch out for these things, and when people are appealing to our emotions rather than our reason, right? Mm. Um, triggering our fear rather than um, explaining something, then I think that does give us a little more protection against coercion. Without question, communities will continue to develop around ideas and practices that are stigmatized in one way or another. Our collective fear of the unknown has opened up the floodgates for new religious groups and their promises of spiritual enlightenment. As long as there is orthodoxy, there will be heterodoxy. People will continue to make normative claims, whether it be on religion, science, healthcare, politics, the list is endless. Perhaps our job as a society is to not pass judgment on people who fall for such claims. We can all close our eyes and remember a time in our lives when we felt particularly vulnerable. In those situations, some of us are lucky enough to lean on the support of our loved ones, whilst others may seek comfort in the forms of broken relationships, addiction, or, like Richard, in a coercive religious group. The lesson we can take away from this is that the blame does not ultimately lie with the individual. They are a byproduct of an ecosystem that grasps on and clings to vulnerability. Our responsibility as individuals is to understand how we can better protect ourselves from the ideologies and ideas that seize and take advantage of such vulnerabilities. Thank you for listening to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. Stay tuned for part two of this episode, where we delve into Richard's ascension out of the cult, as well as the ways in which online communities have shifted the discourse around religion and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This podcast is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. Thanks for listening, and remember, stay informed.